We are on week number, I believe this one, two, three, four of the Holy Spirit. One more week next week uh, to finish everything out. I'm going to start out this morning <laughs> by talking about grapes. I know that's really weird, and it's a very strange way to start out a sermon. Uh, but the largest cluster of grapes ever grown, harvested, and weighed was accomplished by, and I only did this because I really wanted to say these names because they're Spanish and they sound so romantic, by Sebastian Gomez Falcone. And doesn't it sound like, a, oh, it just rolls off there. But that's not, the, that's not the, uh, the height of it. They were grown by Sebastian Gomez Falcone in Los Palacios y Villafranca, Spain. I see how I did that there. My Spanish classes in high school have paid off. Three years of it, I don't know what any of that means, but I can say it. Uh, this was verified on August the 4th, 2018. Brenna, I think we have a picture of that, right? It doesn't look necessarily all that impressive, but that's a cluster of grapes, folks. What's impressive about that is that bunch weighed in at a whopping 22.31 pounds. Imagine that many grapes. It doesn't look like there's that much in that little bunch, but that's what's there. It fully outweighed the previous record that had stood since 1984 by nearly two pounds. Or uh, next picture, Brenna, I want you to meet uh, Ruslan Penchenko, who holds a national record in Ukraine for the heaviest cluster of grapes at just under 15 pounds. So not as much as Sebastian Gomez Falcone, but just under 15 pounds. That's nothing to sneeze at. Perhaps what's more impressive, though, is the size of the biggest grapes among this cluster that come in at roughly the size, I have a picture of this as well, too, at the size of a chicken egg. Now, something seems a little off if you're eating grapes that are the size of a chicken egg. There seems to be a little something off there, but whatever. Surprisingly, uh, weighs in that one grape or those cluster of grapes that are big as that chicken egg weighs in at about one ounce just one grape at one ounce or the equivalent of a pencil or a slice of bread or a double a battery boys and girls if you get nothing else out of this sermon today you can walk home and be like what is one ounce equivalent to a slice of bread a pencil or a double a battery there you go bonus information you don't have to thank me for that if it's not enough and that wasn't enough on the nationalrecords.world website they give a point of interest that a skillful winemaker could yield seven bottles of wine, seven whole bottles of wine from just the cluster of grapes that Mr. Penchenko harvested. But perhaps the most famous and the most impressive grapes in the entire world are the Ruby Roman grapes of the Ishikawa district of Japan. Has anybody heard about these grapes? They're pretty special grapes, and I'll tell you why they're special grapes. The grapes first came to market in about 2008, and they have been wildly popular ever since. They are known and they are prized for their sweetness and their low acidity. It's basically like eating candy, like really, really great candy. They are literally a, a gem amongst the Japanese people of Ishikawa. How wildly popular and how prized are these little morsels? They're so popular that in 2019, Takashi Hasekawa paid 1.2 million yen, or in today's terms, that would be $9,335.10. There were 24 grapes on the cluster that he bought. Back at that time in 2019, that was roughly equivalent to 11,000 US dollars for 24 grapes. Those better be some really, really great grapes is all I have to say. 
The manager of, the, of a chain of hotel or hot spring hotels ultimately planned to sell these little plumpers for roughly $460 a piece. Fruit. Fruit is what we are going to talk about this morning, but not the fruit that you're thinking about. And guys, I'm not sure, honestly, what's crazier as I think about that last story of ruby Roman grapes. Someone, one person paying nearly $11,000 for one cluster of grapes, or another person paying almost $500 for one grape. Perhaps they're both just a little bit fruity, if you ask me. Uh, uh, did, but, oh darn it, Taryn, where you at? I need a little there on that one. Guys, I said we're not here this morning to talk about impressive grapes, but we will talk fruit this morning. Again, not the kind that we've talked about to open uh, the sermon this morning, but before we get to the fruit that Paul talks about this morning, I want you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Everybody ooh and ah, I'm, I have a new Bible up with, here with me this morning. Ah, yes, right? Hopefully it cooperates with me. Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about fruit. Before we get to that, we have to talk about the flesh. We have to talk about this, this fight that is within us that Paul talks about, and he begins talking about that in verse 16 is where we'll pick things up. Paul says, I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide. That's a very important word there. We'll talk a little bit more about this word and words like it in this entire section this morning. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite, the, the direct opposite. Actually, the word that's used here are like the, the poles on a magnet. Do you know what happens? What, what would happen to the poles on a magnet? They do what? They repel. That's how opposite sin nature and spirit nature are to Paul. Directly the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed, there's another very important word there. We talked about uh, up there, guide. Direct is another important word here. When you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation to the law of Moses. You see, guys, there's a bit of an issue uh, with humanity. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but the issue is we could describe it in a lot of different ways. We could dry, describe it just simply as a sin issue, but I choose this morning to say that what humanity has, the problem humanity has, is that we have an inability to walk straight. And especially left to our own devices, we will not walk straight. We will always veer off if we are ruled by this sinful nature that Paul talks about here. We're, we're impaired. We cannot make straight, good decisions, spiritually speaking. This is what Paul is talking about in this entire fifth chapter of Galatians. Apart from some sort of external or internal compass, we cannot do it. We cannot stay on a straight path. Now, I told the Bible study group this morning that understanding the context of Galatians 5 is super-duper important. The large argument in Galatians 5, and really not just Galatians 5, but all of the book of Galatians, pits Paul against a group of people known as the Judaizers. They were all about law and all about obedience, all about right living, all about works, all about rituals, plus Jesus. You see the problem there, don't you? 
There's no plus Jesus in the gospel, in the Christian life. It's just Jesus. And the Judaizers were trying to add all of these things back to Jesus, like additives to Jesus, and saying, Galatians, come back to this. They wanted the Galatian converts to slip back into living by the law, which is powerless, guys. And it's all throughout the Bible. It's powerless to curb or kill our sinful nature. One commentator remarks about the Galatian believer's situation, but really, I would argue, guys, it's all of humanity's situation. It's your situation, and it's my situation, too. And he says this, with no law, no external to distinguish right from wrong and no rituals to deal with transgressions, their sin nature, and provide assurance, I'm going the right way, I'm doing the right thing, their security and their self-confidence were somewhat shaky. For what it's worth, can I just like horn my way in here and on this last little part, your self-confidence is shaky, Guys, the best thing to happen to us oftentimes is for our self-confidence to be shaky. You're like, that's really weird. Like, I've, I've been told all of my life that I need to be super-duper confident, super-duper sure. I need to be so sure of myself. Lie. You don't need to be sure of yourself. You need to be sure that you're saved. That's what you need to be sure of in life. Guys, so much of Scripture is about man's desire and God's desire for man to walk straight. Psalm chapter 5, verse 8 says this about walking in a straight path. Brennan, you bring that up for me, please? Boom. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way, what's that word there? Straight. Another translation that says, make your way plain before me. I mean, you think about John the Baptist when he comes on the scene in the book of Matthew. His main mission and his main message is essentially what? Folks, walk straight. Galatians starts with Paul essentially saying, guys, I'm really, really surprised how quickly you have veered off the true and straight path. And what Paul would say here, what he says in so much of Galatians, is that we cannot walk straight. We have an inability to walk straight because we cannot see clearly. We cannot walk straight because we have no vision. Look with me again at verses 16 through 18. What does he say? Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That nature wants to do evil, and it's the complete opposite of what the Spirit wants. Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature wants and desires. These two forces are always fighting. Anybody ever feel like in their life as you live your day-to-day life that you are in just one gigantic fight from forces outside of you and also forces inside of you? It's what we like to call spiritual warfare, and it's very, very real. It comes from the outside, and it comes from within you is what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5. It's almost like, guys, many times in life what we do is we walk through life with, with spiritual blindfolds on. Like, how in the world are we going to walk 
straight and see clearly when we walk around life blindfolded. All these external influences, that's what I would call this, is we can't walk clearly and straight because we have external opposition. Guys, we have a a flesh problem. We cannot get out of our own way. We're tripping over ourselves all of the time because we're fighting and battling this sin nature. Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, this is what it's like. Bring that up there for me, Brendan. Yes, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable, spiritually unable, to see the glorious light of the good news. And then Paul tells us here that we, we cannot walk straight. We couldn't possibly do that in our own power because we have a fight within. If we just talked about external opposition, he says here, we're held down by sin and we have an internal conflict in us. Let's keep reading here. He says again, starting at kind of the last part of verse 17, these two forces are constantly fighting each other and so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation of the law of Moses. And then listen, this is new. We've not read this yet. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are so painfully clear. They're so obvious. Have you guys ever seen any of these things in the world today? Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties. And I love this. If you're like, no, I... I don't really see any of that stuff in in, in my life. What does it say there at the end? And other sins like these. I love how he just like encompasses everything. Like if you didn't find anything in there that you struggle with in your life, which I'm sorry, but if you can't find something in 15 fleshly qualities and at least one of those that you're like, yeah, that kind of has me, you're kind of lying. Because... Every person struggles with these things, and I'm going to show you in a minute of, of what Paul does with this. But other sins like these, in case you couldn't find one, let me tell you again, Paul says, as I have said before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, we cannot walk straight because we are held down by sin and by its nature and the real hold that it has in our life and the real hold that it has on our life. And what's really interesting as you look at this quality, about 15 qualities and characteristics here of the flesh, Paul is doing something here. It's very interesting in this list of fleshly behaviors that they seem to fall within four main categories. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. I just want to lay these out here. The first category is what I would call sensory sins. Sensual sins, sexual sins, sexual immorality, the word that's used in some translations, adultery, fornication, the word there used in the Greek is porneia. I think you know what words we get that from, or what words include that today. Impurity, uncleanness, lustful pleasures. I want to say this word because it's such a fun word to say, lasciviousness. Or we've probably called it before, people that are just downright lewd. That's what Paul says. Do we see any of that stuff in the world today? 
Absolutely. A world is infected with it. Religious sins are the next big main category that Paul talks about. Idolatry, sorcery, witchcraft is another word that's used there in some translations. It's the Greek word pharmakeia, from which we get the word pharmacy. These people were so searching out something to fill the void in their lives that they would literally drug themselves up, pharmacy, medication, medicate themselves to have ecstatic experiences, to find joy. And then this big section that Paul has here are what I would call interpersonal sins. And it seems to me that as I look at this, this really was the focus of what Paul was talking about because it is such a large list. Hostility, hatred, quarreling. The word there sometimes used is variance, contentions, arguing for the sake of arguing. Now, I'd, I bet that there is nobody in this room this morning, I bet there's nobody watching on this morning that likes to argue just for the sake of arguing, is there? We all do it. Jealousy. Sometimes the word used there is emulations. Outbursts of anger, wrath. Selfish ambition, strife, dissension, seditions, and standing apart. Breaking apart is the actual idea of what he's talking about here. Sort of like, sort of like the mean girls of the church. Anybody ever seen the movie Mean Girls? That's what I think here in this situation is what he's talking about. Divisions. He actually uses a very interesting word there in some translation. Heresies, which we think is just false teaching. It's not just false teaching. It's not just thinking a false truth about God, but it means to choose. Adamant and intolerant in one's opinion or views towards people. And then he ends this interpersonal list with envy. Anybody in here ever been envious of somebody else or something else? And then he ends this list by talking about the fourth main category, which are social sins. Drunkenness, wild parties and revelings in some translations, and other sins like these. Guys, we cannot in our own power, with all the effort in the world, we cannot walk straight because here's the problem. We are resistant to the Spirit. We're not walking in step with the Spirit. There is no internal compass in us. There is no internal guidepost in us. People who are just as lost as us, we, we begin to look to them for the answers. It's like the blind leading the blind. Guys, why do we think the world is in such a mess? Because we're all just looking to each other and we are fallen creatures. We're looking in the wrong direction. We're only comparing our behavior to the behavior and customs of the world around us. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Jesus once said that'll actually get you in trouble. Don't compare yourself to somebody else in their sin level. Have you ever found yourself before that you are in like a traffic jam and you're kind of in some stop traffic and you're sitting there and then like the car next to you begins to kind of move and it makes you feel like you're moving in your car and you kind of have to do one of those moments like, Wait, I, th I thought I was on the brake. Well, I am on the brake. That's kind of what is going on here, what Paul's talking about. The only way that we know it's not us moving is by zeroing in on a fixed point or object. Paul talks about that guidepost, that internal compass, that fixed point, if you will. And what does he say here, starting at verse 22? But here's what the Holy Spirit does, and here's what very importantly here, this word, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, 
and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There is no law against these things. In fact, what Paul would say is the whole law is wrapped up in, these, in this fruit. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow, that's an important word there too, let us follow the Spirit's leading, there's, that, there's another important word, in every part of our lives. Guys, we, we cannot possibly unblind ourselves, take that spiritual blindfold off in our own power. It's not like, it's not just as easy as reaching back and untying it and then taking it off. We cannot steady ourselves. We cannot overpower sin. We cannot walk straight by following our own path. Many times, oftentimes, we are resistant to the Spirit's leading in our life. We have a flesh problem. We have a fight within. And so we have to make a switch. This is what Paul is calling the Galatians to here. I believe this is what we're being called to in our lives as well, guys, is we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. It's kind of like a switch at a train yard or a station. You know that they flip that switch and they put a train on another track so that it avoids the obstacles and the impediments that would otherwise get in that train's way. We need to do the same thing in our life. But, but, but again, we don't need to do that. We just need to let the Spirit work in our lives and cooperate with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit so that switch happens in our lives. This sort of sounds like this in another one of Paul's letters in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he says this, For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and to become like Him. I think of it this way. Have you ever found yourself or you ever remember a time when you were a child and you went outside to play on a really rainy day? And like, that used to be cool, right? When you were kids, I'm like, I want to be soaked to the bone. Now as an adult, I'm like, I don't want to be wet. Like, you know what? Is there anything worse in life? And let's just be really honest and frank and graphic here. Is there anything worse in life than soaked socks and soaked underwear? No. Like, we're, we're adults, we're practical, we don't want to get soaked, or you find yourself out on a winter's day rolling around in that snow, and you come in, and you are soaked to the bone, aren't you? And you know what happens when you get soaked to the bone, your clothes start to stick to you, don't they? And the only way sometimes you're able to get those clothes off is if mom or dad come over, and they start to tug and yank on those, those sleeves, and they yank on that shirt, and they get it off of you, Right? exactly what Paul is talking about here in Colossians. We, we, we spiritually need to allow the Spirit to tug on our shirt sleeves and pull that off of us, and we need to put on some fresh, warm clothes. We need to put on the Spirit in our lives. Guys, this is the only way, Paul says, that we are ever going to walk straight. Paul gives us a list of the works of the flesh as a way of showing us imitations and counterfeits of the true fruit of the Spirit. That's what that is, that whole list there of 15 qualities. They're, they're imitations. They're counterfeits of what real fruit of the Spirit is like in our life. I, I want to just really quick, I, I've, I've got a list of these 
qualities and characteristics up here that I've put into a little bit of a table. And you see them on the left-hand side there, the fruit of the Spirit, love, is always countered by hate and indifference. Joy by despair and peace by anxiety and patience by impatience and kindness by rudeness, goodness by evil, faithfulness by unreliability, gentleness by abrasiveness and harshness, and self-control always countered by being undisciplined in our lives. The very next slide, I've kind of tried to break that up. I told you earlier there are four main categories here, and it's fascinating how Paul does this. You see what he does, right? Fruit of, the, fruit of the Spirit, love, it counters the sensory sins, adultery and sexual immorality and lewdness. Joy counters the religious sins of the emptiness of idolatry, of trying to put our hopes and our dreams in empty things. Find your joy, he says, in, in, in the real thing. And then this whole big section here of interpersonal sins that we read through are countered by peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And then finally he comes to the last thing, the social sins are out of control. Wild living is always countered by self-control. Kind of neat, right, what Paul does? It's almost like he's a genius. It's almost like he had the Holy Spirit helping him to write this letter. Now, there's an interesting change that happens in verse 19 here. It says the works of the flesh. And then it says in verse 22, the, the fruit. Not, not the works of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say the fruit of the flesh, but it says the works of the flesh. It doesn't say works of the Spirit, but what? Fruit. That's, that's worth noting. It's worth paying attention to because when you speak of works, you speak of, and I think of like a workshop, like a factory. Something is made. Something is manufactured. When you speak of fruit, it's, it's something that is natural. It's something that is organic. You think of a garden. You think of something that grows. Things that come from workshops, guys, things that come from factories or, or works are made out of dead materials. Not living materials, but, but dead materials. Fruit doesn't have to be forced, guys. And I really want to say that. I want to stop at this point. I said this to the Bible study group this morning. I do not want anybody to leave here this morning and say, you know what? I think I get what Ryan was talking about. I think that if I just, if I have more patience in my life, if I really just work really, really hard at patience, that'll do it. Fruit will show up in my life. What I say this morning, guys, in the Bible study group, if you try to do that, what? You've already lost. You're back in sinful nature land again. Fruit is not manufactured. It is made by abiding. And in that biting through a natural process, fruit is formed in your life. The Greek word translated here for fruit refers to a natural product of a living thing. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Spirit, not by us. Not by the Christian. That's very important, by the way. Like any beautiful garden or any fruit tree that is bountiful, having this fruit grow in our lives is a process that requires cultivation, very careful cultivation in our lives. In one author's book on the fruit of the Spirit, he says this, we can't make ourselves like Christ, but we can keep on directing our attention to Christ. Guys, we can't develop these qualities in ourselves, but we can do the work of turning our attention 
to Christ and being led in the Spirit and partnering with Him to make the soil of our lives healthy and ripe for the harvest. And you understand this about fruit, don't you, right? Fruit is not meant to grow in all climates and in all environments. In the same way, fruit sometimes is not allowed to grow in an individual's life or in a church's life. Guys, if the soil is not right, the fruit will not be ripe. Spiritual fruit grows best in a climate of living by the Spirit, following the Spirit. Listen again to the words of Paul as I just kind of highlight a couple things here again. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. He says that the Spirit gives us when you are directed by the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit produces. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading. Guys, we don't grow spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit is produced. It's produced in us by the Spirit as we cooperate with Him. We don't run ahead of the Spirit. We don't lag behind the Spirit. We stay right in step with the Spirit. This involves, guys, planting in the right places, in word, and in prayer, and in praise, and in worship, and in fellowship. It's not just about planting in the right places, guys. It's about also pulling the weeds. Getting rid of the impediments in life so that the Word can take root and it can bear fruit. I think it's also very important at this point to mention that fruit isn't for our own enjoyment. Again, like I want to be, I want to be really loving because that'll make me feel good. It's not for us. Guys, an apple tree doesn't enjoy its own fruit, does it? Have you ever walked through an apple orchard and been like, that's really weird, an apple is eating an apple. No, it'd be weird, by the way, all right? The apple tree doesn't enjoy its own fruit, but it's for, and, and, and the fruit of the Spirit is for building others up, bringing others to the truth and the glory and the praise of God. Spiritual fruit is all about others. It's others-centered. Guys, we get better. We get fruitier so those around us are better. The only question at the end of that is, is will we, we yield? Will we let God, will we let the Spirit work in our lives? Skip Heitzig, a pastor, says this, the fruit of the Spirit is the character of Jesus Christ produced by the Spirit of Christ in the life of a follower of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is a biblical term that sums up the visible attributes and the character of God in a believer's life. These are not, and I want to highlight this, these are not individual fruits from which we pick and choose. Like, ooh, I really like that, but I don't like that so much. I'm just going to leave that hanging on the tree right there. No, get it all. A cornucopia of fruits. I said this morning it's like a fruit salad. Bring it all together. We, we don't just pick and choose the fruit and the, the way he uses the word here. It, it's one of like, he's saying like a ninefold, multifaceted fruit that characterizes all who walk in the Spirit, like the cluster of grapes that we were talking about at the very beginning of this morning. Now you see where I was going, right? I wasn't just talking about clusters of grapes for the fun of it. Because these are independent characteristics, but a unified whole. The Greek word, again, is singular. It's not plural. It's fruit, 
not fruits. And as we grow, all the characteristics of Christ will ultimately be shown in our lives. And so, what in the world? Cool, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you for reading that. I've read that a lot of times in my life. What in the world do we draw from this, if you will, fruit salad that Paul serves up to us? I believe that what Paul is doing here, and the fruit of the Spirit is not just a cutesy little thing, a cutesy little song that we sing about the things that we should be in life. It's about the elements of the nature of change in our lives. How in the world, how in the world does change really happen in our lives? Number one, guys, I think Paul shows here change is gradual. Change is sometimes very, very slow. You can never really see growth happen in nature, can you? Do you sit there and just go up to an apple tree and just watch it and be like, oh, I saw it. I saw it. No, you don't do that. You never see grow. Like, have you ever, I hear this all the time about my kids. They're like, oh my land, they are growing. Do I, do I sit at home and look at my kids and be like, oh, I saw it. You did. You did grow. It's gradual. You don't see it happen. It's slow. It's imperceptible. It's we guys, we need patience and we need perseverance when it comes to growth in our life. You can't feel growth. Like, just sit there for a minute. Did anybody, did anybody feel themselves grow? No. You don't feel that. But it can be measured, growth can be measured, can it? Over a period, a long period of time or in a particular circumstance. Growth, guys, is often mysterious and it is often missed, but it is no less true and real. The psalmist says at the very beginning of Psalm, in Psalm chapter 1, he's talking about the people who walk in the ways of the Lord, and he says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, I love this image that he gives. Those people who walk in the ways of the Lord are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never, never wither, and they prosper in all they do. I just get this image of a tree that just keeps pushing its roots further and further down in the ground and closer and closer to the nourishment and to the water and everything it needs to grow, but that's very slow. The fruit of the Spirit, guys, always grows, often grows slowly and seasonally. Real change is usually gradual. We don't always see it, but we can see the evidence, the visible fruit of it in our lives. And yet as slow and as gradual as change is, the second thing I think Paul tells us, change is gradual, but it is inevitable. If the Spirit of God is in you, it will change you little by little. Guys, we are not saved by fruit we are saved by our faith, but we will never be changed by fruitless faith. Change is gradual. Change is inevitable. Change is internal. There is a difference between external, mechanical, manufactured growth and internal, organic growth. If you were to go out and you were to find a bunch of rocks and you were to start keep throwing rocks in a pile, do you know what that pile would do? It would grow, wouldn't it? It would grow and expand, but it's not organic growth, is it? It's growing in quantity, but it's not growing in quality and depth and health. 
Guys, you can't just, I mean, go out here and try this if you want to, parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Look at the kid and be like, grow! Just grow, just grow, I want you to grow! Like, does that ever work? Never. Never, I've never seen that actually work in life. I just want you to grow. I want you to grow physically. I want you to grow up emotionally. To grow up in your attitude. It doesn't work. Change is gradual and change is inevitable and change is internal. And change is very importantly, the last thing that Paul talks about is change is symmetrical. If you have one of the fruits it will lead to all of the others over time. Love is the gateway to all the others. That seems obvious to me as I read this. But you don't just stop at love. You let love lead to the rest of the fruit. If you want to know the love and the joy and the peace in your life and you want to know it's real, you just have to check if it's all connected. There's this old word. It was first used by Jonathan Edwards. It's the word concatenated. All right, It's a big word. And it just simply means interlinked. These things go together. All the graces of God, all this fruit that Paul talks about goes together. You can't have one without having the other. They are so interdependent and so meshed together, there's no separation. Guys, it's impossible to truly love without being patient and kind. It's impossible to exhibit self-control toward another person without a God-given joy. This is really weird and interesting verse in John chapter 12. I actually remember in seminary, I was tasked with this text and to preach a sermon from it. And I was like, this is a really weird text until I've studied more and more and I get exactly what it's saying. Now, John chapter 12, verse 24 says this as we start to come to an end here. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. You see what Jesus is talking about, right? He's not talking about kernels, and he's not talking about... What, he's talking about himself. His death that was impending at that time. Guys, we, here's the question. Will we ever in our lives be as faithful and as loving and as self-controlled as Jesus? Definitely not in this life. But would we love to come as close to Jesus as we can in this life? Absolutely. And isn't it good to have the promise of God's Spirit in us, deepening our capacity to be gentle and kind and good? You know, when I think about it, and I read that verse in John 12 there. When it comes to fruit, Jesus didn't die to plant a garden or just to sprout a little tree. Jesus died to start an orchard. And, and what is the fruit that we find in that orchard? Galatians 5, 22, 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And at the end of all of it, the question that we ask ourselves, and I think this is the most important question, and it's not, can I be more joyful? Can I be more self-controlled? I'm sure going to try my heart. That's not the right approach. It's not the right question. The question is, am I living in and by the Spirit, or am I living by the flesh? 
Our answer will be determined by which one we are feeding more often in our lives. Guys, it should be so obvious. As obvious as it, Paul says it there in, chapter, in verse 19 of chapter 5, it is obvious what the works of the flesh are. It should be just as obvious that you are living in the Spirit. The surefire indication that you are saved and walking in the Spirit is that you don't sin, but that you struggle with and you struggle against sin. I'm here to tell you this morning, like you're, you're probably down on yourself all the time, but man, I messed up again. I really thought today was the day that I was going to wake up and do something different in my life. If you are struggling with sin in your life, good. You should be struggling. You should be scared if you are not struggling and you're just giving in to sin in your life. Galatians 5, 16 through 26 that we read this morning is not about salvation and our potentially forfeiting that salvation. It's about the fruitfulness of our faith, and that is what God is after. R.C. Sproul says it this way, the gifts being gifted by the Holy Spirit, those are fascinating and exciting. To be a gifted person is to receive accolades from our fellows for our performances and our abilities. And for these reasons, and perhaps others, the gifts of the Spirit receive far more attention in our culture than the fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit seem to be doomed to obscurity, hidden in the shadow of the more preferred gifts. Yet it is the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit that is the mark of our progress in sanctification, becoming more like Christ. Of course, God is pleased when we dutifully exercise the gifts the Holy Spirit has bestowed upon us. And then listen to this last line. But I think God is even more pleased when He sees His people manifest the fruit of the Spirit. So here's where we've been, guys, the last couple weeks now, as we talked about last week, that we are saved and we are safe, we are sealed, and we are secure. We have a power in us that we can tap into at any time. And now this morning we've talked about that we are spiritually growing, and we end next week with the fact that we are equipped and we are sent to speak. How apropos that we are in a Bible study right now about speaking, because that's what the Spirit sends us to do. He equips us to speak. I hope you will join me next week for that. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask, so, so ask this morning that again, like I said, that we do not walk away from here this morning, try to figure out and scratch our heads and conjure up more effort on how we can get more fruit into our lives, how we can know that we are connected to You but that we would simply walk away from here today and in our walking, we would just walk in step with the Spirit. And as we walk in step with the Spirit, guess what happens, Lord? Fruit just begins to pop up in our lives. It is because of Your presence in our life that we have the ability, any ability, to produce the fruit that You call for. And as we do that, we are growing. I pray that we would always be focused on growth because if we're not growing, we're going backwards. May we be fruit on the tree of the kingdom, God, not withering, 
not dying, but prospering, bearing fruit and more fruit and much fruit. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.